Programming note, money stuff will be off tomorrow and Monday, back on Tuesday. Bitcoined. Taking a step back here, there is something really cool about what Bitcoin has accomplished, in some ways much cooler than Satoshi Nakamoto's original vision for it. The original vision of Bitcoin was that it would be electronic cash, a way for people to send payments to each other without involving a bank or other intermediary. Fifteen years later, I mean, there has been some progress along those lines, some people sometimes do pay for some goods and services using Bitcoin. But it has not exactly taken over the world of payments. El Salvador made Bitcoin legal tender and required all businesses to accept it, and even there it is not that widely used. In big developed economies, despite years of crypto proselytizing, people still much prefer fiat currency and traditional banks. And yet, the price of Bitcoin has gone from zero in 2009 to $46,000-ish today, not on widespread adoption as a payments mechanism, but because people, lots of people, crypto evangelists, but also regular retail investors and quite traditional investment strategists at big institutional investment firms, view it as a store of value which means that they think its price will go up, or at least not go down, robustly and for the long term. They buy Bitcoin at $46,000 not because they plan to use it as digital cash, but because they think other people will buy it at $47,000, $470,000, or whatever. Which is why people buy Apple Incorporated stock, or Treasury bonds or oil futures or whatever, they think other people will buy them, so the price will go up. You know what Keynes said? But those things have cash flows or industrial uses. Those things are claims on economic activity. Bitcoin is just a thing a guy made up 15 years ago. Its function as a store of value is almost purely self-referential. Not this is worth $x because other people will buy it for $x because other people will buy it for $x because, etc. Other people think its cash flows have a present value of $x, but this is worth $x because other people will buy it for $x because other people will buy it for $x all the way down. Bitcoin is an astonishing social technology. It would, in the abstract, be useful for the world if there was just an entry in a computer database that we all agreed was valuable, just because, with no reference to any underlying commodity or series of cash flows or industrial activity, just a number that was valuable. And so someone invented it. Traditionally, currency works sort of like that. The U.S. dollar is this sort of social technology. It has value because it has value, not because it has cash flows, but there's a whole ton of complex and long-standing social technology that goes into that. The U.S. has a government and an army and an income tax and a debt stock and a trade balance, which help to preserve the value of the dollar. Bitcoin expresses the thesis that it would be good to have a valuable database entry without that. Just something was valuable because people on the internet voluntarily agreed it was valuable, with no government or army or taxes or anything else and it worked. That did happen. It has value due to a broad voluntary market consensus based almost entirely on itself. In some sense that consensus is fragile. If a thing is valuable only because people think that it is valuable, it could stop being valuable when they stop thinking that. But in another sense that is true of any social fact, the dollar is valuable, the king of England is the king of England, the US is a liberal democracy, etc., exactly as long as those facts command social consensus. Bitcoin got to what seems like a pretty robust consensus in 15 years. That's just neat. Anyway, as expected, U.S. regulators for the first time approved exchange-traded funds that invest directly in Bitcoin, a move heralded as a landmark event for the roughly $1.7 trillion digital asset sector that will broaden access to the largest cryptocurrency on Wall Street and beyond. The Securities and Exchange Commission, whose three-part mandate includes investor protection, 
authorized funds from industry heavyweights BlackRock, Invesco, and Fidelity to smaller competitors including Valkyrie to begin trading Thursday. The approvals mark a rare capitulation by the SEC following opposition that lasted for more than a decade, ever since Tyler and Cameron Winklevoss first proposed a Bitcoin ETF in 2013. BlackRock incorporated surprise application last June, followed by an appeals court ruling that called the denial of a different application arbitrary and capricious, triggered a blistering rally in the cryptocurrency amid speculation that U.S. regulators would finally give their blessing to the structure. There is something pure about this, as Bitcoin news. A Bitcoin ETF is vastly less useful as a payments mechanism or a way to supplant the traditional financial system than just buying Bitcoin instead of an alternative peer-to-peer payment system in which everyone can hold their bitcoins directly and transfer them to each other without middlemen this is a crypto thing that you can hold in your traditional brokerage account and not use for payments at all but it is more useful as a store of value you can hold it in your brokerage account where you hold your stores of value you don't have to mess around with an alternative financial system you can just isolate the store of value component of bitcoin and hold it directly And so the price of Bitcoin ran up in anticipation of the ETF approvals because everyone expected that the ETFs would lead to more people holding Bitcoin as a store of value, which is the best reason for Bitcoin to go up. Sell the news. The SEC approved the spot Bitcoin ETFs a little after the close yesterday, Wednesday afternoon. A little after the close on Tuesday afternoon, the SEC's account on X, formerly Twitter, tweeted that it had approved spot Bitcoin ETFs. That turned out to be fake. The SEC's Twitter got hacked. The SEC had to walk back that statement on Tuesday and then walk it forward again on Wednesday. We talked about this yesterday. Nya, 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 I wrote. When the Bitcoin ETFs got fake approved on Tuesday, the price of Bitcoin posted a relatively modest jump to almost $48,000 from about $46,700 before falling back toward $45,000 when it turned out to be fake. I was a little perplexed, everyone expected the ETFs to be approved by today, so the fake tweet didn't add much fake information, and the retraction didn't add much real information, but whatever. The fun fact is that, when Bitcoin ETFs got approved for real on Wednesday, the price of Bitcoin, jumped to a bit more than $49,000, from a bit more than $46,000, before falling back. Bitcoin paired gains after surging past $49,000 for the first time since December 2021, with trading commencing for the first U.S. exchange-traded funds that invest directly in the biggest cryptocurrency. The token had advanced as much as 6.7% to $49,021, buoyed by the approval of spot Bitcoin ETFs by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission after markets closed on Wednesday. It was recently trading at around $46,000. Most smaller tokens, such as Ether, Cardano and Polkadot were higher. All of the 11 ETFs are trading and over $2.6 billion has changed hands in just the first few hours of trading. The market reaction to the SEC's fake approval of Bitcoin ETFs, a quick modest spike followed by a disappointed modest fall, is remarkably similar to the market reaction to the SEC's real approval of Bitcoin ETFs. Also, I wrote yesterday that, while it is possible that someone hacked the SEC's Twitter to make money by manipulating the price of Bitcoin, it was also possible that whoever did the hack was just trolling for fun and did not make any money by manipulating Bitcoin. Several readers emailed to point out the strongest argument for that possibility. If you wanted to manipulate the market, you would short Bitcoin and then hack the SEC to tweet, 
were once again declining to approve Bitcoin ETFs. Too many problems. We're confident we'll win in court this time. The market really expected the SEC to approve the ETFs, so there was not a ton of information in Tuesday's fake tweet, and it didn't move the price of Bitcoin that much. But if the fake tweet had confounded expectations, that would have moved the market. If you were a ruthless hacker manipulator looking to maximize profits, that's what you'd do. If you were a crypto enthusiast looking to troll the SEC for fun, though, you'd fake tweet that the ETFs were approved. Also, by the way, the SEC's approval is hilariously grudging. Here's SEC Chair Gary Gensler's statement. Though we're merit neutral, I'd note that Bitcoin is primarily a speculative, volatile asset that's also used for illicit activity, including ransomware, money laundering, sanction evasion, and terrorist financing. While we approved the listing and trading of certain spot Bitcoin ETP shares today, we did not approve or endorse Bitcoin. Investors should remain cautious about the myriad risks associated with Bitcoin and products whose value is tied to crypto. And here is Commissioner Caroline Crenshaw's dissent from the approval. Spot Bitcoin markets are subject to fraud and manipulation. One form of manipulation that appears to be pervasive in the crypto markets, and specifically Bitcoin markets, is wash trading, a practice whereby traders seek to increase the appearance of high trading interest by both selling and buying the same products at the same time, often driving up prices, and then selling to unwitting third-party market participants at inflated values. Wash trading distorts price and volume, causes volatility, reduces investor confidence and participation in financial markets, and of course, results in investor harm. One analysis of 29 major crypto exchanges found that wash trading was, on average, as high as 77.5% of the total trading volume on unregulated exchanges. Specifically with regard to Bitcoin, an analysis of 157 crypto exchanges found that 51% of the reported daily Bitcoin trading volume was likely bogus. In fact, though reporting regarding Bitcoin frequently discusses the enormous size of the market, one market participant who now seeks to sponsor a spot Bitcoin ETP has admitted that approximately 95% of the data used by many participants are fake and or non-economic. In short, prices and demand for Bitcoin may not actually be what they appear to be. I joked yesterday that the SEC should deny all of these applications, saying we were going to approve them, but it turns out that the Bitcoin market is still too vulnerable to manipulation, as you can tell by the fact that someone hacked our Twitter to manipulate Bitcoin. Crenshaw makes that argument. Indeed, just yesterday, prior to the issuance of our approval order, one of the SEC's social media accounts was compromised, and an unauthorized post falsely indicated that we had approved spot Bitcoin ETFs. Unsurprisingly, the price of spot Bitcoin suffered whiplash in the minutes and hours following the false tweet. While the facts underlying this misconduct hopefully will be uncovered by law enforcement in the future, I will be monitoring what may be yet another attempt to profit from wrongdoing in this market. Interest. You could imagine, I suppose, a physical dollar ETF that worked like this. You send money to the ETF issuer. The issuer uses your money to buy crisp $100 bills. The issuer keeps the $100 bills in a nice, safe vault. The issuer charges fees to cover things like its marketing cost, its cost of renting the vault, etc. In some rough sense that's how a physical gold ETF works, and it's how a spot Bitcoin ETF works. There's some stuff, the stuff is a store of value, and the ETF keeps the stuff in a physical or cryptographic vault, not doing anything with it. But in fact there'd be something a bit crazy about doing that with dollars. There are cash ETFs in some sense. But everyone understands that these ETFs don't hold crisp $100 bills. 
they hold extremely safe interest-bearing short-term debt instruments. If you invest your money in one of those ETFs, it will hold your cash for you, in roughly the sense that a bank would. Colon it will lend out your cash, as safely as possible, give it back to you on demand, and pay you interest. This is the natural way of the world in finance. Even a stock ETF will probably do this. Stock ETFs often take their investors' money, use it to buy stocks, and then lend out some of those stocks to earn a bit of extra interest. Modern finance is very interested in efficiency, and abhors the idea of buying anything, putting it in a box, and doing nothing with it. You've got some stuff in a box, you take it out of the box, you lend it to someone who wants to do something with it, and you earn interest. The Satoshi Nakamoto vision of crypto was very different. This idea of building opaque leverage into every part of the system, of constructing everything on webs of debt, is part of what Bitcoin was reacting against. But the modern vision of crypto, or at least the 2022 vision of crypto, was like everything else in finance. You could hold Bitcoins in your digital wallet, like holding $100 bills in your regular wallet, but the action was in depositing your Bitcoins with some quasi-bank that would lend them out, earn interest, and pay some of the interest to you. This led to various terrible problems, chiefly. Those quasi-banks were very highly leveraged, and when crypto prices fell, many of them collapsed and took their quasi-depositors' money with them. The lending done by these platforms was pretty much all in support of speculative trading rather than real-world economic activity. People didn't borrow bitcoins to buy houses, they borrowed bitcoins to make bets on bitcoin prices. So the collapse was pretty sharp. Also a fair amount of fraud. The U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission is quite convinced, for fairly good reasons, that all of those crypto lending platforms were securities, subject to securities regulation, and that everyone running those platforms was doing so illegally. Still, in the long run, if you have a giant pot full of electronic financial assets, and if there is demand to borrow those assets, won't you want to lend them? Ten years from now, if Bitcoin ETFs are still around, is it more likely that they will be physical ETFs, just holding inert Bitcoins in a pot, or that they will be money market-ish ETFs, lending out their Bitcoins to earn interest and passing it along to their investors? Of course, today the answer is physical. The prospectuses for today's Bitcoin ETFs say that they will hold the Bitcoins in custody, not that they will lend them. Here is Grayscales and here's BlackRock's. And SEC Chair Gary Gensler's statement on the Bitcoin ETF approval says, Importantly, today's commission action is cabined to ETPs holding one non-security commodity, Bitcoin. It should in no way signal the commission's willingness to approve listing standards for crypto asset securities. Bitcoin lending is a security, in Gensler's view, and not something he wants to approve at this point. Cash versus in kind. One other what will the future bring sort of point about Bitcoin ETFs. The normal way that, say, a stock index ETF works is Normal people buy and sell shares of the ETF on the exchange. They don't actually give any money to the ETF issuer. They just trade in the secondary market. Arbitrageurs make sure that the price of the ETF and the price of the index stay in line. If the price of ETF shares gets too high, ARBs will sell ETF shares and buy the underlying index. To complete the arbitrage, a few big banks or trading firms, called authorized participants, can exchange the ETF shares for the underlying index. They can collect a basket of all the stocks in the index, deliver them to the ETF issuer, and get back some new ETF shares. This is called creation, or they can collect some ETF shares, deliver them to the ETF issuer for retirement, and get back a basket of the underlying stocks. This is called redemption. ETFs work this way in part for price efficiency reasons. In-kind creation and redemption, 
makes it easier to arbitrage the ETF against its underlying index, in part for operational efficiency reasons. It means the ETF doesn't have to do much trading for itself, and in large part for tax efficiency reasons. It means that the ETF doesn't have taxable gains from selling its underlying stocks. Similarly with a spot Bitcoin ETF, the straightforward mechanism would be to have authorized participants hand Bitcoins to the ETF issuer to get back ETF shares, or hand ETF shares to the issuer to get back Bitcoins. But in fact none of the ETFs approved yesterday work that way. They all use only cash creation and redemptions. Authorized participants give the ETF issuer dollars and get back shares, and then the ETF goes and buys new Bitcoins with those dollars. The main authorized participant for the Bitcoin ETFs is Jane Street Capital, though there are a few others. The reason for this seems to be that the SEC doesn't like in-kind creation redemption for Bitcoin ETFs. Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, in its ETF prospectus, says, In common with other spot Bitcoin exchange-traded products, the trust is not at this time able to create and redeem shares via in-kind transactions with authorized participants, and there has yet to be definitive regulatory guidance on whether and how registered broker-dealers can hold and deal in Bitcoin in compliance with the federal securities laws. To the extent further regulatory clarity emerges, the sponsor expects NYS ARCA to seek the necessary regulatory approval to amend its listing rules to permit the trust to do so, the in-kind regulatory approval. Subject to YSE ARCA seeking and obtaining in-kind regulatory approval, in the future the trust may also create and redeem shares via in-kind transactions with authorized participants or their designees, any such designee, an AP designee, in exchange for Bitcoin. There can be no assurance as to when such regulatory clarity will emerge or when YSE ARCA will seek or obtain such regulatory approval, if at all. The problem is that, to be an authorized participant in the ETF, you have to be an SEC registered broker-dealer, since you are effectively distributing the ETF shares. And the SEC is very skeptical of registered broker-dealers trading in Bitcoin. From an SEC perspective, you can trade ETF shares, as a broker-dealer, or you can trade the underlying Bitcoins, as an unregistered Bitcoin-wide trader, but it's tricky to do both. That makes the Bitcoin ETF arbitrage, where you trade the ETF shares against the Bitcoins, tricky. P. Carry Trade. Last year the Federal Reserve created a program to allow banks to borrow short-term at long-term rates. I mean, sort of. What it did was create the Bank Term Funding Program, which has the following features. Banks can borrow for a term of up to one year, prepayable without penalty. The interest rate is the one-year overnight index swap rate, plus 10 basis points, fixed at the time of borrowing. So you could borrow for a term of one day to one year, in any case at the one-year interest rate, plus 10 basis points. Ordinarily, longer-term interest rates are higher than shorter-term interest rates. It is usually cheaper to borrow money overnight than it is to borrow it for a year. And so this program was, arguably, very mildly punitive, a classic lender of last resort program along the lines of lend freely against good collateral at penalty rates, or at least not subsidized rates. But right now the reverse is true. The overnight rate is fairly high because the Fed has raised rates a lot over the past few years, but the one-year rate is lower because the market expects the Fed to lower rates over the next year. And so the BTFP creates a weird carry trade. Banks can borrow at the BTFP's low one-year rate, 4.87%, today, lend at the higher overnight rate, and match the maturities. You can even match the counterparties. You borrow from the Fed, using BTFP, and lend to the Fed, as reserves, at 5.40%, today, and just get free money. 
The Wall Street Journal reports. Borrowing from the Fed's bank term funding program has increased to new highs in recent weeks, a strange consequence of the market's flip to forecasting multiple Fed rate cuts over the coming 12 months. The rate banks pay to use the program, BTFP for short, is tied to future interest rate expectations. Now that investors have priced in a series of rate cuts later this year, banks are able to pocket the difference between what they pay to borrow the funds and what they can earn from parking the funds at the central bank as overnight deposits. While the Fed offers financing below 5% through its rescue program, it is currently paying banks 5.4% on parked reserve balances. Lending in the program hit $141.2 billion this past Wednesday, a new high, up 4% from the prior week and up 25% since the middle of November when forecasts started changing. Most of the volume is still loans from the crisis, and the number didn't move much from July to November. The increases don't seem to be a sign of new stress on banks, especially since deposits have ticked up at the banks over the same period. It appears more likely the banks are just taking the easy money. We think banks are exploiting a positive arbitrage, Jannie Montgomery Scott analyst Christopher Marinak wrote in a note this week. The benefit will eventually shrink, if not evaporate completely. The program is set to expire on March 11th, barring an extension. On Tuesday, Michael Barr, the Fed's vice chairman for banking supervision, suggested the facility wouldn't be extended. Good trade. Griffco. If you start a shell company, use it to acquire an exploration stage mining property that is not currently producing anything and then use the company to apply for a Canadian provincial government program that provides up to $200,000 of taxpayer money to fund exploration projects, should you give that company a name like, Griftco Corporation? I mean... No, but... this guy seems fun, I'm gonna allow it. Bay Street lawyer Chris Irwin is one of the principals behind Griftco. In an interview, he said the name has a perfectly innocent explanation, has nothing to do with ripping people off, and was inspired by a funny acquaintance. I had a friend called Alistair Griffin who had a phone message that when you called it said, thank, thank you for reaching Griftco, all our agents are busy, he said. We sort of had a running joke about that, and then I said, I'm going to steal the name. So I incorporated the company, and now I have the name. Mr. Irwin says that nobody at those companies ever raised concerns about the optics of doing a deal with Griftco. It's probably my reputation that people know it's ironic, he said through spurts of laughter. It's very important that if you do start a company called Griftco and use it to apply for taxpayer money, you are very careful to do everything by the book. If you get in trouble, at Griftco, nobody is not going to believe you that it was ironic. Also that Globe and Mail article notes that another recipient of Ontario Junior Exploration Program funding is a company called Money Money Money, but they weren't able to talk to whoever chose that name. Things happen. Chesapeake to create number one U.S. gas driller in $7.4 billion deal. Hedge funds take on private equity in battle for distressed companies. Citigroup's Jane Fraser embarks on another pivotal year of bank cuts. There's finally hope for the office real estate market. Goldman Sachs traders get their swagger back in stocks. Morgan Stanley names 155 to managing director as class shrinks. Bitcoin X hack an embarrassment for cybersecurity conscious SEC. Google lays off hundreds in hardware, voice assistant teams. Skydance backers explore all-cash deal to gain control of Paramount. Enthusiasm ebbs for a diversity initiative in venture capital. Ex-Goldman manager sues bank over mental health crisis. Lloyd's bank manager awarded £450,000 after winning case over racist slur he made. Employee's lawsuit calls financial firm alcohol-fueled sexual cauldron. Blocked toilets close eaten, 
boarding school for Britain's elite sons. If you'd like to get money stuff in handy email form right in your inbox, please subscribe at this link. Or you can subscribe to Money Stuff and other great Bloomberg newsletters here. Thanks. In this section I will elide the actual process of ETF creation and redemption, where you buy and sell shares in the open market and authorized participants trade against you and then create and redeem shares with the issuer. Doesn't matter for our purposes here. In the US they seem to avoid calling themselves exactly that, e.g. the BlackRock Ultra Short-Term Bond ETF has the ticker ICSH, for iShares Cash I suppose, but doesn't use cash in the name. But the Australian equivalent is called the iShares Core Cash ETF, and there's a Canadian money market ETF with the ticker cash. I mean, probably mostly discount instruments rather than coupon paying ones, but you know what I mean. Roughly. A bank will do a lot of maturity transformation, using your overnight deposits to make 30-year mortgage loans and whatnot. A money market ETF will do very little maturity transformation, using your money to buy, like, one-month treasury bills. This is non-technical. Technically they earn stock lending fees, not interest, and the mechanism is more complicated than that. They lend stocks, take back cash collateral, invest the cash, earn interest, pass some but not all of the interest back to the share borrower, and keep a bit of the interest as their stock lending fee. For instance, the BlackRock iShares Core S&P 500 ETF says the fund may lend securities representing up to one-third of the value of the fund's total assets. In its order approving the ETFs yesterday, the SEC noted in a footnote that the proposals under consideration by the Commission in this order only contemplate cash creation and redemption by authorized participants. Accordingly, in-kind creation and redemption processes by authorized participants and their relative benefits or drawbacks are outside the scope of this order. But the SEC seems to have, you know, hinted that it preferred that. I have said before that a spot Bitcoin ETF is a much simpler and more sensible structure than a Bitcoin futures ETF, which the SEC approved several years ago. Some readers pushed back, the spot ETF is simpler and more intuitive for an investor, maybe, but it's more complicated for an arbitrager or authorized participant. This, roughly, is why. Trading regulated exchange traded futures against ETF shares is fairly straightforward. Trading both Bitcoins and ETF shares is a bit harder. Because overnight lending is overnight, and you can terminate your BTFP borrowing at any time. If at any point the overnight rate falls below the BTFP rate, you just close out both sides of the trade. 